I'm in Watford. I grew up in Watford. And I remember seeing you. You probably don't remember because it was just another day at work. Um, this nah, was you, the, you never know, but you're likely right, yeah. The end of 2013, it was Watford nil, Queen's Park Rangers nil. I looked up the lineup. You were playing left-back. Joe Barton was playing centre-back. Nico Cranshaw was just the best <laughs> player on the pitch. <laughs> Such a long way. I can't even remember who was the manager of you at the time. Yeah, it would have been um, Mark Hughes. Sparky, at probably, yeah. yeah. So, a clean sheet. So, well done. Somehow. Somehow. <laughs> Somehow, yeah. And then, of course, at the end of that season... Uh, was it the end of that season, the Zamora game, as it's now known? Uh, in the, uh, sorry, it was it was um, High Rednap then. It was in the Championship. Was yeah, it was Rednap. That was the Zamora game, yes. Yeah. The Zamora moment, the iconic moment, which he's actually done twice now. He did it for West Ham once and for QPR, yeah. Correct. That was the as, one. As you say in your book, Kicking Back, which we're here to promote. But you don't need the promotion. You're going to sell thousands of copies of this book. Obviously, obviously, yeah, obviously. You know what I mean? Most of the North has pre-ordered it already. Yeah. I believe. Brilliant. Or so I'm, I've heard, or, I sh- or I'm being told. I should say, it's not the only book, A, out this week, and B, with you in it. Uh, because I have in oh. my hand a copy of, and I, I want to just get this out of the way before we do plug your book. Um, I wrote a book about the Youth Cup, and you're in it. Ah, okay. For which, so, for which year? Um, well, you're in the Man City lot. So having described the class right. of 86, I then spun forward to talk about your chats with uh, Richards and Michael Johnson was a brilliant yes. chat. Yes, um, yes, 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 yes. Thank my, you. My only complaint is that kickback is on sabbatical. Is it going to come back <laughs> at some point or are you very busy with the three little kids? No, the, the kids aren't the reason why it's not been back. But I think... That's in some ways the sort of gift and the curse of a podcast. Like I've obviously not released one in coming up to a year, but then in the same breath, it could just I could just release one tomorrow, and then it's like nothing ever happened. Mm-hmm. You see, that's the that's the beauty of them leaving it open ended. And I have a few ideas of people I'd like to speak to, but it's just about those connections and so on, and just being able to reach out to this person, that person, being able to get their time, and you know, given at the state of the season that it's in now, you know, trying to get hold of some of those people is proving to be quite tricky. Yeah. Well, I, I hear there's a big football tournament at the end of the year uh, that comes Allegedly. around every every four and a bit years, which I'm sure we'll get to because you have friends over here and over there. So I should ask you, Nader Manua, did you get messages from various Americans whom you knew when the group was drawn? Yes. Yes, I did. And in some ways, it's going to be interesting because having been over there for the two years or two and a half years, you can sort of gain a perspective of how they perceive football and perceive their own place within it. Like in some way, I think they're quite they're quite harsh to the men's football team because they they compare them directly to the women's football team, who are essentially world champions and one of the greatest teams in the history of women's football. So they say, well, the men don't do that, so they're not as good, you know. And it's obviously not that simple, but. I think it's a good chance to go up against uh, like a country like England who have all the stars. And even if they come close to drawing the game, you know, it would be like huge news. But the only downside is, in my opinion, is that's during prime like NFL season type things and college football type things. Yeah. And it's involved in getting up pretty early, I think, to be able to make the most of that game. So uh, People are going to be tuned in, but I don't think they'll be getting a ton of casual viewers anyway, which is a shame, because if it was in the summer, perhaps they would. Do you broadcast on American TV nowadays? I do. Yeah. Uh, it's, a mi- it's a mixture, actually. So I, I work for ESPN, but and that goes out live in America through the, uh, through the app. 
and it can appear on TV as well. But then in the same breath, that same show appears on um, BT Sport, but not as a BT Sport direct program, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as well, it's spread around uh, around Europe and other parts of the world as well. So I do cover things, and they are based in uh, Bristol, Connecticut. So, yeah, I, I guess I kind of appear on TV in America since most of my work for them tends to start between 10 and 11 p.m. at night, yes. Mm-hmm. It is incredible picking up this book, Kicking Back, which is out by, whether, by the time this goes out. It will have been out a few days. People will have posted online, oh, I got Nader Manua's book. All the Zlatan <laughs> fans will have bought it just yeah. to kind of throw yeah, of course, yeah. on it. It's, that is yeah, the only time. Bloody, yeah. Again, yep. we have far too much to discuss and you will discuss your book to the point of being sick of it. You'll have your words quoted back <laughs> to you and you'll go... All right, can we talk about something else now? But what I love is that you dedicate the introduction to two of your friends, uh, the man I call Charlie, Charles Mm. Joseph Hart. Joseph Hart, yes. And uh, a man who, he's just getting into the punditry game. He's being kind of introduced really gently, sort of five minutes at a time. (laughs) Every night. And I open the book and I go, oh my God. Can we not even... I can't escape this guy who is contractually obliged to laugh at every sentence, which is true. (laughs) And yet he calls you... I'm not going to do the the Yorkshire accent. He calls you the most boring man in history. Um, Yes. When you know what he's like, you can see that it's a compliment. Because he, he, through his younger years, like he probably wished he had a more boring life and he kept it simpler because, you know, he was enjoying being Michael Richards, let's just say that. And the same for Joe and I like him. For me, I just I was just doing my I was doing the same things then as I'm doing now and just trying essentially as crazy maybe, given the fact I have a book out, to just mind my business and just enjoy life um away from the limelight, ironically. And that limelight has taken you to Salt Lake City. Well near Salt Lake City the stadium is. It's not quite no, it's not, it's not quite there. It's not yeah. quite there, but it's still still close enough to uh, be able to travel to within 15 minutes, let's say that. Have you been contacted by Real Salt Lake or MLS fans or the great Men in Blazers to plug the book? Mm. Do you know what? Interestingly, no, the Men in Blazers have not spoken to me, but I think it could be because the book doesn't get fully released over there till October. Oh. Like, I'm not quite sure why that is, but maybe there's going to be an autumnal push to get all of America to buy the book. I'm, I'm not sure. But um, I'm sure there'll be something that will go on around that sort of time because from when I've told people about it back over there and I've still got a lot of connections there, they're very keen to get a hold of it and I keep saying, uh, well, just be patient and I'll try and figure something out for you. Yes, you will find a way in that you found a way that the loveliest bit of the book, which focuses obviously on your time in England, but I was interested in what was going on at Salt Lake. Um, all the people that you gave tickets to for yes. for one of the games in was it 2019 and they all wore face yes. masks with your <laughs> yeah yeah surreal that, that's yeah it was it was inc- it was incredible that's one of the highlights of not just my career but of my life because you know I, I will get tickets for games for people and you know whenever there's a big game that's at Old Trafford or that was at the Emirates more people will be asking for tickets but they're not necessarily coming just to see me they want to see the game itself or see that stadium but when it's Real Salt Lake against Houston in October time there's not really that much of a draw to it but all that neighbourhood I'd only been there with my family for a year year and a bit but we were really close to everybody and that sort of neighbourhood type feeling I'd never really experienced that before like I get along with my neighbour here in Manchester but that's because it's my father and somewhere else that I was you know maybe not quite that same relationship but over there there were five, six, seven households who all got along really well every Friday one of my main neighbour would just open up their garage doors 
bring out some tables, bring out some food, some drinks, and everybody's gathered around, the kids are all playing together. So for them to have that sort of vested interest in me, and when they didn't really like or ever really watch football before that point, and then all of a sudden they know everything about me, everything about my team, and for them to all be there supporting me, was it was really, really cool looking back. I think I tried to sort of understate it at the time. But I really love that moment for sure. No, Nader Manua, bringing people together through the power of football. Uh, and we're, exactly. we're talking on the 12th of May. I mean, there are certain things that we could talk about for tomorrow. But the important thing is, have you sent Yaya Toure a birthday card for tomorrow? <laughs> um, I have not sent him a birthday card, but thanks for reminding me. I'll try and, get him a me- I'll try and send him a message. And also, you know, it's Friday the 13th. It's a bit scary, isn't it, for some yeah. people? Yeah, but not at 5.30 in the afternoon because uh, this show will go out on the 20th, which we, we think by that time Manchester City will be kind of like a graduand. They will have almost won the, the trophy. I don't know if you're going to the last game of the season. I suppose you are. Uh, I suppose you're wrong. And the reason I say that is purely because I do a lot of media stuff now, obviously not to the same extent as someone like a Michael Richards who is doing his thing. But I tend to choose it to be like a hobby because I spent 16 years living it as a profession and being at this game, that game, having to cover this and cover that. And now I kind of wanted some free time back. So that weekend actually happens to be the weekend that I would have been with my wife for 20 years. So we're actually going away somewhere. So, you know, yeah. So with me, it was just a case of, you know, I booked this trip away and then somebody from the BBC contacts me and said, oh, so are you available for this weekend? Because we need to do this, this and this on a grand scale. It's like, yeah, unfortunately, you know, I'm away. But, you know, it is what it is. Family, you know, it's only the end of the season after all. Family comes first. I mean, by that time, City. Always. There's a chance that City won't have won the title, but barring some form of collapse, a team which has scored 94 goals and is going to sign one of the most exciting number nines in world football, uh, indeed has. Um, I'm sure you'll be asked to comment on City later. So, so just well done. They've got it right at City. I've been to the Etihad campus. I've never been to a game at the Commonwealth Stadium, but I've looked around and it really does. You see it from the tram. And yeah, for me, yeah. for me it, it was a wow moment. For you, who actually grew up metres from it, it must yes. be incredibly surreal. Yeah, absolutely. There was nothing there when I first lived in in Manchester in Miles Platting, and I was when I joined City's first team, or City's academy rather. They were based over in Moss Side in a place called Platt Lane, and they made the progression from there to Carrington. But you know, in true symbolic fashion, it was the training ground, which wasn't as good as the Carrington that was down the road for Manchester United. You know, it was very much second best from that standpoint. But then I saw the changes happen. I saw the ownership come in and try and really deliver their ambitions not just on the field but off the field as well so they're really invested into that so they created this new training ground and we'd already moved to the stadium at that point but the stadium's been changed in time the training ground's been changed and it's the whole campus itself is is amazing and it kind of suits where City are at this moment in time and to see how far they've come from being at Main Road which was an incredible stadium to seeing this stadium now and even though it's 20 years old it keeps developing year in year out and some of the football that's played in there is as good as anywhere on planet Earth. Yes. And I never thought I would have been able to say that when I was just living in Mars Platting and uh, making taking the 111 down to uh, towards Platt Lane to try and, uh, to Platt Lane and um, Main Road to try and watch some of those games. You really do recreate what it was like to grow up in the kind of diaspora community of Manchester. Yeah. And I would love to go into the family history. But all it makes me think of is that line in Hamilton, immigrants, we get the job done. So... <laughs> 
Yeah, because yeah. we don't really have a choice. That's the thing. Nope. Um, and it, with that, I think that's a that's a good intro to this bit because it, at times they can be double standard. But because I sound like I do today, some people forget or don't care where I've come from. And I think that's the thing that's different because as you've seen with the book, there's a lot about identity in there. And even to go back to a particular point, when you know people were voting on Brexit and I like, there were some people who were coming up to me and because I sound like this, they were making a significant case to me about how they don't want people to come into the country because of this visa, that visa, so on and so forth. People coming in are causing an issue. It's like they forgot what my name is because my name is something which I hold very dearly to me. And my name was one which came over because of said visa from Nigeria when I was five years old. So you see there's that intriguing bit of my identity and obviously I'm biased when I call it intriguing, but yeah, I think it's a significant part of me and uh, it goes a, it goes a long way in terms of the way that I view the world. I didn't know you were a Chinadum. I knew someone who shared the name of your sister, Chidinma. She went as Maria Goretti, but her family oh, okay. had won a lottery to go to ah. North Carolina. Uh, was okay. it North Carolina? Yeah, and she moved, she moved there when she was seven, had a very similar upbringing, one of five kids. She's now a lawyer. Um, okay. And it was, and so I, I knew that she is the symbol of the Igbo people. Mm. And, That's uh, right, yeah. I don't think I've ever met a person from the Igbo tribe whom I haven't got on with or enjoyed speaking with. But because it seems what? to, I'm, I'm very Jewish. And okay. I don't know how close you are to like Cheatham Hill and the East. Not too far away. Yeah, yeah not too right, far yeah. away at all. Yeah. Were there Jewish kids at your secondary school? Would you know? No, them? no, they were not. No, 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 they were not. My secondary school was in Oldham, so there were a few um, kids of like Asian descent. And then one thing which I discovered, as as shows in the book, there were two black people. There was myself and somebody else that was in my class throughout the whole school. So there wasn't really that much diversity as such. But where I live in North Manchester is literally five minute drive away from Cheatham Hill, mm-hmm. and the places where I lived, because whether it was Harper Hay or Miles Platting, again those sorts of areas there was I say it wouldn't take long to be in Cheatham Hill to be in Mossad to be in wherever where there is more diversity but it's just a shame that at the times when I lived in those areas there was none whatsoever in the specific place that I was in that's a shame I know that uh, David Conn the phenomenal investigative journalist and qualified Jewish lawyer he grew up in that part of the world in Cheatham Hill and his book Richer Than God you might be in it actually because of the nonsense that went on uh, which I'm, which I'm not going to go into. It's been. I thought, you, I thought you were saying I might be in it because I'm one of the people considered richer than God, and I was to which I'd say, yeah, I'm not no, because sure you, you, no, because you're a philanthropist, because you give your money away, as you showed at Salt Lake yes. in, in a book near yes. the end of the book, which your wonderful work for charity. But yeah, this book, Richer Than God, David Conn came up and watched Man City tumble through the divisions. I think he was alive mm. just with the Dennis Law back heel. Yeah. Um, in '74. But he, is, he was in two minds. He would speak to um, Sheikh Mansour's representative, whose name was Khaldun al-Mubarak. The, the plans for City and the City Football Group especially were very interesting. And it is just very helpful that Man City, for Manchester as a city, you know how they used to advertise going to the University of Manchester as the place where Man U live. Now it's Man U and Man City, and you have something to do with it as a player... Who, who wore that Man City shirt? And I know you've got some of them at home and you've got all your trophies. Is this your trophy room that you're in now? <laughs> no, no, this isn't my trophy room, but it could be because there are many trophies up there. Um, because interestingly for City, I've played there for a long time. 
But I'm, I'm trying to cons- I'm trying to decide if I should be insulted that they decided to go and win things as soon as I left. I'm trying to figure out whether I was the issue or whether it was something else. I'm not sure. Oh, I, what, what would you say? I think there were several issues with City in the 2000s, which <laughs> David Conn covers brilliantly in his book, Richer Than yeah. God, which is in the football library. Perhaps I should explain that the football library is a place that... It was my lockdown project. Uh, I yes. started talking to various journalists and critics, and in the Prose of Prose series... Uh, I've spoken to Ricky Hill and Graham Tutt and uh, John Newby and Jackie McNamara. So you have added your book to the shelves of the Football Library as a pro who has written prose. Um, I suppose because you work in the industry, you, the last thing you want to do is read accounts by players of their lives. Um, it depends. It depends on the player, as is the case with, I think, just general media on TV as well. You can yeah. say you, every, sometimes if you want to watch the Champions League, for example, you have to watch it on BT Sport, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you want to listen to the people who are commentating, you see, because they'll be telling you certain stories and the like. So, um, yeah, I, I, it depends on the book. There's certain books which I'm interested in, others which I'm not, but that's purely because of my perception of said individual or, say, the clubs that they want to align themselves with or some of the opinions that they, maybe they expressed during their careers. Not to say it's a bad book. But, you know, we have choice, and uh, I like to uh, use that whenever possible. I always recommend Jamie Carragher's book, Greatest Games, which um, Mm -hmm. he wrote with Chris Bascom of The Telegraph, because it looks at football... Effectively, it's Gogglebox with football, where they take a player and they talk Ah, through a key fixture. I think he may actually talk to your friend, Micah, for the the game which you played in 10 Mm. years ago. Um, Yes. Do you get reminded regularly about that Um, game? Interestingly, um, I've spoken about it a lot in the last, say, two or three weeks, but there was a bit of a gap before that, and I spoke about it quite a bit last year because people were almost anticipating it as such. But that it was such a significant game, and I think as a player being involved in it, it's great because, you know, you're almost immortalised because you were part of one of the most significant games in Premier League history, maybe English football history. But then also, I forget sometimes that I lost the game. You know, I lost the game 3-2, and we lost in the last minute. But the beauty of the fact that it didn't matter and you realise now as well the significance of, of the game itself for Man City and the fact that that was their first Premier League title. And now 10 years on as they're approaching their fifth, maybe, I think it is. It's, or sixth, maybe, I'm not sure. But it's, it's, it's incredible. And it was very strange for me to be playing for the opposition because I was distinctly blue. But on that day, I was very much a hoop in a place which I used to call home. But now I'm being treated like I'm away. And the best way to describe it was... As I arrived at the stadium with QPR, I saw all the faces that I'd seen for many years before. And they were all happy to see me, and I was happy to see them, and I was saying hello to them. But for the very first time, none of them wished me luck. Mm. And that's when you knew that things had changed. Well, it was a big day, because whatever happened, City had to win. The big day, I remember being in a pub in Ryslip, or at Harvester, and I watched company head the ball in. Uh, against yep. Man U and from that moment it looked inevitable there was something about the City team uh, led by a manager whom you have said had hair dryers installed at the training ground of course that's the most important thing whenever you come in as a new manager you know that, that is that is the most important thing you need to have a hair dryer now obviously he was he was very different he was very concerned about his image and that's perfectly fine and looking back like that's who he is. I never really encountered another manager like him. But in terms of some of those like vanity type things, I guess he felt that if he looked good, he'd be good. And overall, during his time at City, he was good. It's just a shame that he wasn't as wasn't more personable because I think he generally would have stayed at the club for longer. 
because he managed to get the team to play them play exactly how he wanted. And even to this day, I'll be honest. So I left him ten years ago. I left the club ten years ago when he was in charge. And I play five asides once a week now. And there's still certain traits which I picked up from him in that time, which I still do to this day. Mm. And that is literally two clubs later and a retirement and yeah. about and 10 years. But it's still just ingrained in my mind because I had to do it so many times when he was coach. No one ever really talks about Mancini, who did do really well in Italian football in the 1990s yes. and at the end of the that era of football. Mm-hmm. Football began in 1992 because the rule changed because of the pass-back rule, not because yep. of anything else. Um and Mancini almost got Italy to, should have got Italy to a World Cup final. I was going to ask about Nigeria and the World Cup. And I'll do yeah. it in phrasing in this question. Okay. Uh, when Ghana went through and Nigeria didn't, did yes. you blank the um, Delarie twins? The twins are Nathan and Jonathan who trained at Man City with you and went on to have careers in the game. One has become a maths teacher, the other now plays for AFC Mansfield, but they are of Ghanaian heritage. I did blank them, but that was because they reached out to me to let me know that they were superior. So yes, I did blank them. It does matter. And also, the more research I do on stuff like this, I sort of, I feel a bit bad because... You know, only four, I think it's only four teams qualify for the World Cup from the continent of Africa. It seems too low to me mm. because there's a lot of pressure. Again, like I think the number is 13 from Europe and four from Africa. But the difference between, uh, I think, the amount of nations in Europe and in Africa is like separated by maybe two or three. So 13 seems a lot. And the question, some people say, well, historically, Europeans have done better. I say, well, maybe that's because they've got greater representation. And again, 13 teams from Europe can't all do well. So what's the value in having that many in there? Because as you say, you know, there's a round of 16. And then from 16, there is eight. And to say that every team in Europe is going to be delighted to just be making a round of 16 isn't necessarily true. So for four, when we saw in the playoffs a couple of months ago, they all won their groups and the reward was now to play against, to have a playoff against another team who won their group. They're still in, um, in qualifying for the World Cup from the European section. Teams that finish in second and third going into play- or third, I think, going into playoffs and the like. And you, you know, we'll see Scotland versus Scotland or Ukraine versus Wales in a knockout. Not to disrespect any of those nations, but how many of those really have ambitions to go and win a World Cup? I'd argue none of them. So, um, yeah, maybe spread the places out a bit more. How about that? You are quite right. There are things in football that are wrong and useless. And you talk about the system, there's a particularly <clears throat> gruesome bit in the book where you you mention other kids coming through who have more opportunities at international level than at domestic level which is all in this book kicking back uh which people should do over the long bank holiday weekend um oh yes coming up and uh especially because city's last game will be their procession um (laughs) we think against villa look you lose so few games Two players in every position, and that coach. Have you? All I would say. Yeah, go on. All I would say is that it's not you because I do not play for them, and I make that very clear. I support them. I do not play for them, and as an ex-player, I can't accept to you because I have not kicked the ball for this glorious football team. So, yeah, I'm going to have to separate myself from that. Well, I can't take yeah, well, you for what can say that, but I've written in my book. I mean, this isn't like a kind of Spider-Man v Spider-Man. I quote: your, "You were talking about your time." At Man City, you would get the autographs, you'd sit in yep. the kipaks at the time when you were a ball, but you actually got to the Division 2 playoff final, and I won't yep. spoil the ending of that, because I'm sure you'll, you'll talk <laughs> elsewhere. 
Um, and particularly, I just while I've got you, just because I've written about the Youth Cup, the book is out now from Kids to Champions. Jim Castle and Frankie yeah. Bunn and Alex Gibson and Asher Hartford brought through these guys. Uh, you say um, they grounded us and you yes. are all in it together. I, I hope that uh, Ben Wilkinson is doing this for cities under 18 and then the elite development squad, the 23s. But it's good that the expansion of a bench means that the likes of McCarty and Liam Delap can get game time for the senior yeah. team. If not minutes, then game yeah. time. Yeah, that, that's for sure. And to those guys, you know, they're very significant. Uh, the coaches that you named are very significant in my career and lots of other people's careers as well. And let's be clear, City back then aren't the same as they are now. They don't have the same scrutiny, they don't have the same budget, they don't have the same expectations. So things have changed. But that thing you mentioned about the bench, I remember Sven Goran Eriksson being furious that there were only five players allowed on the bench and he wanted more. Because I think on the continent there might have been more available, I think in Italy specifically. And he felt you just kept disappointing so many players on a week-to-week basis. Mm. And then I remember looking back at City programmes and stuff and anyone who's over a certain age remembers times when there was just one sub. Then this is in the mid to late 80s. Imagine, imagine a day now where there's only one substitute allowed on the bench when we panic now when you can't fulfil the full seven and you only get six on there. But for those guys, it's good for them to be integrated into the first team. And that's part of the plan. That's the whole value of the academy, the EDS system. This is, this is how you build clubs these days, try and make things future-proof, give them a taste. Can they match the ambitions of the club are they good enough to be able to play in this game to play in that game are they getting better whilst training with the first team what like even being on the bench and seeing I remember obviously City lost against Madrid a couple of weeks ago now but seeing some of those youngsters walk out on the field before the warm-ups and stuff and looking around at the Bernabeu and thinking you know this is incredible they were taking pictures like you forget sometimes that even though it's a big game between these two sides for some of those guys on the field that are in the squad there, it's still an incredible moment, which they'll never forget, which might inspire them for the next year, two years, three years, four years and beyond, you know, because you want to get back there and feel that, but get back there and not be taking a picture, but instead be taking someone take a picture of you because you're having such a significant role within that game. Yeah, it is, it is a job and the workplace is so important. The reason Burnley have done so well for 10 years and outperformed the wage bill is because of the workplace and... You dedicate a whole chapter, chapter 14, to Joe Barton, um, who um, would never start a fight that he would lose. Um, I think it's a brilliant... This is what I call anthology-worthy, because it actually stands in opposition to Mike Calvin, co-author's Joey's book. And there are certain footballers who are known in the industry and outside the industry. And I must also congratulate you... Nader Manua, whose book Kicking Back is out now. £20, do you reckon? Yeah, it'll be yeah. about that. That should get you something, yeah. You, you <laughs> chased the white whale, Mario Balotelli. You got him after five months, and I read it about three hours ago. I didn't read it at the time. And it's one of those pieces where perception and reality are contrasted. And <clears> I did not know that Mario Balotelli's only Premier League assist, and sorry <clears> to remind <throat> you of this again, uh, was against 10-man QPR. That's right, Really yeah. good assist. Yeah, he was. He was very key, looking back at it. Yeah, he did very, very well for that. And that's... City fans loved him, you know, as a bit of a co-hero. But also, like, looking back, he, when you get caught up in a moment, you sort of lose track of what's really happening. And Mario, when he first signed, he was 19 years of age. Like, that, that is really, really young to arrive in a place where the expectation is so high and he's such a big name. So... 
he, you know, he did the best that he could, and you know, thankful for him for, as well as some of the goals which he scored. He's got that assist which will go down in history amongst the City fans at least for sure. Yes, and you can hear about Dickie Denton's time. Uh, there's a chap who's written a book called Feeling Blue uh, about supporting City in the 70s right up to the moment that Aguero scored mm. the goal. And he was over in Singapore uh, mm. watching it. And it's... it's... Oh, can I, can, can I say, by the way, that Aguero moment, that's like such an iconic saying and moment as it goes in. But when you watch it back, when you've already seen the game and seen the goal, it doesn't quite hit the same. Because yeah. being on the field then, like, I don't have any connection with Martin Tyler shouting Aguero. I just remember the ball hitting the net and the crowd jumping up and me thinking I was being relegated. It doesn't quite feel the same, unfortunately. That's the downside, like, we come across sometimes, of actually being there as opposed to just watching it from a distance. Because you're not playing a commentary in your head. It's not kind of a new, no. I pass it forward to Cruncher. No, you're probably saying, no. OK, I've got to be there. When, when the play is there, I've got to move back there. And it, yeah. it, Were you, at the end of the career... At the end of the QPR career, and kudos to you, you were ever-present for uh, a QPR season. So all those injuries that you'd had early in his career, you had two seasons pretty much unblemished and you had a screaming baby at home. So well, really well done. Um, It's easy. Of course. Um, But did it feel robotic at the end? Were you just a a player in a role or was it interesting playing under all those QPR Uh, managers? I would have rather have just played under one. But each manager that came in brought something different. And it's not to say that I loved every single one and every single bit throughout, but you learn something from each guy, whether it's someone's tactical nature, somebody, the way that they train, the way somebody tries to motivate the players, maybe for one, as against the style of play. But I didn't feel robotic as such because for the last three years and my six and a half years there, I was actually his captain. And I was given the captaincy by Chris Ramsey at a time when the club was starting to take and more of a turn and sort of focus on youth. So they needed someone, they said, who was going to be able to help that youth develop and to sort of lead them along the way and sort of keep them on the right sort of path. And I took that as a huge compliment. And I loved doing it because in that time, there were quite a few young players that were coming through who were really good guys who were trying to teach the ways of the game. And I remember when I was younger at City, there were times where I need, I felt I needed help. But because football can be so macho, you don't seek it and nobody wants to give it. It was basically just dog eat dog around those sorts of times. But, you know, as is in line with the world, you know, the great conversations about mental health and checking in on people and the like, and even though there aren't enough of those, there are more. So I made sure that when I was captain, I got to know all of those players and got to know what's going wrong when they're not playing well and what I need to do to get them playing well again. Whether it's something on the field, off the field, do they feel comfortable with me? Can I represent them in front of the coach? because I'm supposed to be the the, the goal between, between them and the manager. Mm-hmm. And there have been times in the past where I'd had captains who weren't that. The captains basically represented themselves, and whatever they said to a manager is what they thought the team should be doing, but that's according to their own beliefs, as opposed to the beliefs of the team coming out and being, able to come, being comfortable enough to come out and be honest, honest with them. So I actually really enjoyed it, and to this day now I'm seeing um, Ilias Chair playing really well for QPR, one of the key players to name but one. There's Bright Say Sammy who's playing for Fenerbahce and then there's a Berrieze who was close to when I was a captain at QPR and you know, you see him playing week in, week out for Crystal Palace now. So. Oh he's astonishing. Here's my yes. sixty four million dollar question. If Ebere Eze comes to you and says, Gareth Southgate, who loves Palace players, he adores Palace players, he calls up every Palace player he can for England. Southgate wants to call up Eze for the World Cup, but that means he can't play for Nigeria. Do you advise him to take the England 
role? I think I think I advise him to speak to more people than just me. Okay. And to sort of weigh up the opportunities about why do you think one thing is a better option than the other? And for Nigeria, like I watched them lose to Ghana in that game. True. The type of play which they needed was a Berry Eze, like an attacking midfielder. That was the exact person in the exact style of play that they needed. But then in the same breath, me just projecting onto him saying, I need him to do this. It's not the same as him making a decision which will affect him for the rest of his career. Yeah. So I'd, I, w- I would say, listen, I'm coming. I, in fact, I'm glad you said this because I saw him at the uh, the, semifinal, the FA Cup semifinal and I had this exact conversation. And I think I know which way he's leaning, but I just needed him to make sure that, you know, don't just listen to me because I know what I want from you, but this has to be the right decision for you. And should the people come calling, the best moment will be if they both call at the same time because then that's when you make a true decision as opposed to making the right decision just because one person sent you a letter. But it'll be very interesting because Conor Gallagher, Tyrick Mitchell, um, there must be others in that team. Mark Gay, who have played for England. Mm. It would be, It's yeah. like a mini Crystal Palace. It's like the Academy of Football. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Eh? Who would have thunk it? Um, amazing. Um, let's just... Uh, we're reaching the end of the Zoom call. Zoom has shortened the show to 40 minutes, which is enough. That's, it's quite enough. Yeah. And if you want to hear more of Nadam and Nua... Uh, kick back with Nadam. There are hours upon hours of conversations. Yes. The one with Noel Gallagher is a great place to start because it's the only one when you're actually a little bit fanish of the team. Casper <laughs> Schmeichel, nah, you, you know Casper. Yeah. Noel Gallagher, yeah, the guy yeah. whose bass lines, whose songs you used to sing. Yes, yes. That's amazing. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And you... that was, um... go, on. go on. No, I was going to change the subject, but go ahead. No, go no, feel free to change it, because uh, I'll just carry on for another 10 minutes, and it's, I promise you it's not worth it, please carry <laughs> on. Uh, you made your City debut in October 2004 against the Arsenal Invincibles, whom three days before had lost to Man United. Were you conscious of that, mm-hmm. as someone who was involved in the industry, that the great run of this great team had finished? You know what, I didn't think about it in that context. This is amazing, I've learned so much about my career over the last sort of week, two weeks, as people do more and more research around the You're welcome. sort of context of saying, yeah, thank you very much, I'm <laughs> going to take that one with me, as, as I did with the other things, but I just remember that as an academy player and a reserve team player, it's a big jump from watching games to playing in games, because all of a sudden, like I, I saw that game where Arsenal lost United, you know, I saw the Invincible season and all that stuff when Van Nistelrooy missed the penalty, all that jazz. Like, you watch that on TV, even though you're a, like you're a professional. You watch football, you're obsessed by it, but it doesn't feel that real because you never experience it. Then all of a sudden you're doing it. Like, I'm playing against Arsenal at the city of Manchester Stadium. And that's, that's Fabregas, that's Van Persie. Like, what? It's really, really surreal because it goes from being in a position whereby it feels like a million miles away to being directly in front of you on a week-to-week basis. And I didn't realise the sort of context of that game itself, but still I knew I was playing the Arsenal, and it was like a really, really good Arsenal side. And it was a good, and it was the Arsenal like League Cup side where they'd make changes. So mm-hmm. you're always watching to see who the next superstar is going to be, and it just so happened, I think, in that game, it might have been Van Persie. It was. Van Persie played against you. Which Deleria twin played in that game? Jonathan, the central midfielder. Yes, whom uh, now is at Mansfield AFC. He uh, went on to play for Mansfield Town as well. His twin Nathan played mm-hmm. for Hyde and now teaches maths. So you're still yeah, in contact right, yeah. with them. And it's an amazing team sheet. Danny Mills is there. Robbie Fowler, Sean Wright Phillips and your youth team colleague Willow Flood, who came up with you. Uh, that was your City debut and then you got thrown in for the next league game. 
I think yes. my final question is, Nader Manua, professional footballer, which is not what you want to be known for for the next 20 years, and I wish you so much luck. It's going to be really interesting following what you're going to do. Uh, and mm. the, the book is, I'm sure, the first of many. Um, the book is uh, kicking well, back. Uh, we'll see. Oh, the book, well, I should say, co-written with Hugh Ferris, who deserves a lot of credit here, and I would have I given him more. a lot of credit, yeah. Yeah, but for we, sure. He's the only reason I did it, yeah. He's yeah. the only reason I did it, right? Uh, the set-piece menu was also taking a sabbatical podcast with. But when you were 17, 18, were all the lads who didn't get in the first team regularly proud of you or jealous of you or both? I think there must have been hints of both, but overall it's pride because I still speak to those guys today. And one thing I've discovered over the years as well, I think this is when I was speaking to Casper, is that not everybody in an academy team has the dreams of wanting to play for the first team and be a professional for their whole life. Like for us, if you do really well at Sunday League, you'll get scouted. And if you get scouted, you're now in a different talent level. So now instead of playing for, say, your local team like Clayton that I played for, I'm playing for Manchester City and your weekly games are against United, Blackburn, Leeds, Aston Villa, stuff like that. So for them, that was just part of the experience and they just love playing with their peers. And they knew, everyone knows who's, who the better players are in a team. And sometimes you can't affect that. You can't just make yourself better. So I think for them... I think a lot of them accepted that they didn't really want to pursue a career in football. If it happened, it happened. But ultimately, to see one of their peers playing week in, week out in the Premier League was almost like they were there alongside them because we still speak to this day. Can I emphasise that there's a lot more than football here? The last chapter, which brings in Tucker Carlson, who is a gremlin, and the murder of George Floyd. I think there are... You know why Joey Barton was on Question Time? I think you'll be getting a call quite soon. So... We'll see, we'll see. Start swatting up, uh, Chief. Yeah. Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library!